Well, good evening to you all, and thank you so much for being here. It is a delight to see you, and uh, I, I pray that this is a, a good and helpful time for you. Our speaker for this weekend is Pastor Michael Foster. He is the pastor of East River Church right outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. He and his wife, Emily, have seven children, and they live on a farm in Batavia, Ohio. He is a graduate of Greenville Theological uh, seminary or Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. He's the co-author of It's Good to Be a Man, which was recently published by Canon Press. We are thankful that he is spending his weekend with us. Michael, thank you for coming. Okay. This is a pulpit for Dwayne. saying it's huge. Wow. Yep. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 28. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible in 1995, if you're curious. Jeremiah chapter 28. Now in the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year, in the fifth month, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet who was from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I've broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I'm going to break the back to this place, all, or excuse me, bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I'm also going to bring back to this place Jeconiah and the son Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all exiles of Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priests and in the presence of all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord confirm your words which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all the exiles from Babylon to this place. Yet hear now this word which I am about to speak in your hearing and in, your, in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who were before me and before you from ancient times prophesied against many lands and against great kingdoms of war and of calamity and of pestilence. The prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, then that prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke it. Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, even so will I break within two full years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations. Then the prophet Jeremiah went his way. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go and speak to Hananiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, You've broken the yokes of wood, but you've made instead of them yokes of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all the nations that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him. And I have also given him the beasts of the field. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year you are going to die because you have counseled rebellion 
against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died in the same year in the seventh month. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that is more sure than anything. It never fades away and it equips us for all the things we have to face down in this life as we travel from uh, this, this world full of crosses and losses and veils of tears, God. Uh, you bring us safely into your home. We pray you would equip us now for the time and place you've put us. Pray this weekend would be fruitful, especially in the life of this church. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Over the years, I've found myself more and more uh, drawn to the books of the Bible, which deal with the exile of the nation of Israel, the lead up to it, the experience in it, and the recovery from it is instructive as you consider the American situation. What is the American situation? Uh, My friend Aaron Wren has described it as a negative world. Once upon a time, it was a positive thing to be a Christian in our society. It was seen as a good thing, a plus. And then this changed to a neutral world, a society where an individual's Christianity is neither here nor there. The negative world, the world that you live in now, is the one in which a individual's Christianity is seen as a negative, has a mark against you, as something worthy of being canceled for and removed from positions of influence and perhaps even society itself. I've heard others refer to this as a post-Christian culture or society. And I I don't prefer, I don't like that framing, post-Christian. As opposed to post-Christian society, I prefer an apostate society. And I, I think that highlights a key fact. As a people, as a culture, we Americans don't exist in a religiously neutral vacuum as it relates to Christianity. Uh, we aren't a culture unequated with Christianity. It's central to our history. It's a long part of our national identity. But we, as a people, as a nation, have rejected it. And now we, as a culture, exist in an active reaction against Christianity. Think of the difference between a non-Christian who grew up outside the church with relatively little knowledge of Christianity. That's, that's how I grew up. I didn't know anything about it. And I thought Good Friday was a mystery. Why would you celebrate the death of the best man ever? I just knew nothing, had no clue. And I uh, looked at Christians just kind of as, as, as stupid nuisance. I didn't really think much deeper about that. So think of that type of person. And then think of some annoying ex-evangelical 20-something atheists, right? You know some of those people that have walked away from their faith? Which one tends to be more angry and aggressive towards the truth of Scripture? The guy that kind of grew up away from it or the guy that grew up in it and actively rebelled against it? That's what we are. We're that that, uh, ex-evangelical apostate. That's our nation. Our nation is an apostate nation. It's an apostate culture. It exists in reaction to Christianity. It's, It's animosity is focused on Christianity, not merely religion in the general, but the truth of Scripture. And that's one of the many reasons our society right now, uh, I think we can rightly say, we are a people under judgment. That's the American situation. One nation under judgment. 
Which brings me back to the uh, exilic and post-exilic books. These books describe life under and life after being under judgment. It records God's dealing uh, with the apostate nation of Israel and her response to his dealings. So why I think it would be a mistake uh, to make the American nation a one-on-one analog with the nation of Israel, I still think we can and should mine helpful principles uh, to aid us in navigating the situation that we all find ourselves in as Christian citizens in an apostate, in an apostate nation. That's why uh, studying uh, the books leading up to the exile, during the exile, and life after the exile are especially helpful, and I'll be pulling almost entirely from those this weekend. Now, with that in mind, let's look briefly at our text, Jeremiah 28. Uh, I'll show you how I think this is connected both to the American situation and the topic of the conference, biblical localism. Now, I, I just when you put an ism on something, people tend to think you have a complicated system. I don't. I just like how localism sounds. Uh, it sounds like, you know, you're really about being local, okay? That's more or less what I mean by it. Someone said, uh, so is this a Jeffersonian localism? And I'm like, hey, I went to public school. I, <laughs> I don't know who that is. Um, <laughs> no, I know who he is. He's that black guy that moved on up to the Lower East Side. Um, <clears throat> come on. But when I mean biblical localism... I think what I mean by that will become clear is how God has made you embodied human beings to exist in relationship to where he's put you in time and space. Now, the book of Jeremiah covers a lot, and I believe it's something around the area of 60 years of history. It covers the close of King Josiah's reign, the boy king under him was that last uh, revival, was the last good king of Judah. Right, the last little flurry of hope before they were uh, carried away into exile. And then the book continues through the reigns of the, the last evil kings, right up to the three-month reign of Jehoiakim, who was taken by Nebuchadnezzar into captivity. It also deals with Nebuchadnezzar's puppet king of Israel, Zedekiah, who Nebuchadnezzar eventually destroys for plotting rebellion against him. And after that, the entire nation is then exiled to Babylon. And through all of this, uh, the prophet Jeremiah was given the difficult task of prophesying against a nation he loved in favor of a nation he despised. It comes up over and over again. You can't understand that. You can't understand lamentations without understanding that he loved his people. He loved his nation. But he loved his God more, and he did what his God told him. Now, why did he have to prophesy such? Well, Very simple. Israel had repeatedly broken its covenant with their Redeemer God. And unless they repented, a day of devastating judgment would be visited on her. So Jeremiah, he preached his heart out. When I was in the PCA, and I'm still fond of the PCA. I know it's common to beat up on her. But what drove me nuts is people thinking, well, we have to find a way to get rid of these liberals. Like it was procedure. We had to figure out a place in our book of church order you want to get rid of them, you preach fire, right? You preach truth. No one can stop that. The word of God is unchanged and very effective at dealing with heretics. Jeremiah believed that. He's probably one of the most bold and heroic men 
in all of Scripture. I always think about Jeremiah versus Jonah. Who would get, who would get the conference circuit? Would it be Jeremiah or Jonah? Would it be the doom and gloom, Jeremiah? Or would it be Jonah who look at the fruit of his ministry? Right? Look at all these people that repented. All these people that he hated repent. Right? And it shows how, how we have to be careful in what we attribute uh, to the character of a man. Jeremiah's fruit was few and far between, but he is a godly man. He's a great man. His message of repentance wasn't received well. It rarely is. Because again, gloom and doom. Jeremiah, the Debbie Downer, the negative Nancy, right? Where's the silver lining in those storm clouds, Jeremiah? Don't you know that for every negative, you got to give two positives? Can you learn that, corporate America? Well, there weren't many silver lines. There aren't for an apostate nation. And Jeremiah did not back down. He said exactly what God told him to say. No nuance. And it got him put under house arrest, thrown into prison, and even tossed into a dark pit. And they openly opposed Jeremiah, the man of God. Their false prophets contradicted his message. And they burned his writings, and they struck him in public. In, their heart, in the hardening of their heart uh, against God's prophet, they hardened their hearts against God himself. At one point, the hearts became so hard that God even told Jeremiah to quit praying for Israel. Doesn't matter. There was a point of no return where God would not spare them from judgment. It was going to happen one way or another. And that is the point that they're in, chapter 27 through 29, around there. Jeremiah's a hard book to interpret sometimes. It jumps around chronologically. In chapter 27, God through Jeremiah says, it will be that the nation or the kingdom which will not serve him, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon. I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have destroyed it by his hand. But as for you, do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, your sorcerers, you who speak to you, saying, you will not serve the king of Babylon. So, Israel uh, was a nation in denial about their situation. They heard Jeremiah say this over and over again. And she was desperate for any good news that would allow her to maintain the delusion that judgment was avoidable, that there was some sort of cheat code, some way around this. Enter Hananiah, the preacher of victory, triumph, and good vibes. And what does Hananiah say? Well, he says the opposite is what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Hey, let me just side note here for a moment. Preaching the word of God is absolutely terrifying because when you step into the pulpit and preach the word of God, I, you become as God to people, his representative. And the fact that Hananiah is this bold, that he'll say, thus says the Lord, right? Taking God's name in vain in one of the most intense ways by adding to his scripture, false revelation, 
Thus says the Lord, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I'm going to bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I'm going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Now, uh, Hananiah reminds me of my time in the charismatic church. I got saved and uh, charismatic, I went to, I got invited to a um, two-on-two basketball tournament. It was, it was a big sham, though. Midway through, they stopped us from having fun and had some guy come up and preach the gospel. And usually I'd be totally against that thing, because that's like bait and switch. It's like you sickos that leave that $20 looking track. <laughs> like to, as a tip, what's wrong with you? But uh, so I showed up there, uh, but God's word's unchained, I got saved. Right? I was an atheist, and then I wasn't come Monday. Um, so I was in a charismatic church, and it was a weird time in the 90s. All right, Very weird. People were barking like dogs. People were like being slain in the spirit. That's where like someone falls over for what they th- say is a spirit, but if you put your hands up high and your feet together low, your center of gravity gets up to about here, and you just fall over when someone pushes you. I can slay all of you in the spirit tonight if you'd like. I can show you how it's done. Okay? Um, there was flag ministries. What is a flag ministry, you ask? That's where they had these big flags. Well, actually, they had small flags, and they would wave them all around. And when you're trying to get to your seat, you feel kind of like Rocky. You know, like in boxing where they have that string where you come up under, right? You have to, like, get to your seat. And I remember this one guy took off our American flag in the back of our, it was like an old school gym. This thing was huge. And so he's, like, swinging it back and forth. All dramatic, all crazy, all over the place. So glad not to be part of that anymore. But Hananiah, he would fit right in. Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke it. So dramatic. Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people saying, Thus says the Lord, even so I will break within two full years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations. Then the prophet Jeremiah went away. Hananiah won this debate, right? Positivity, drama, right? That sort of stuff resonates with people. If you pay attention to a lot of things online or YouTube or political speech, it's a whole lot of nothing. And so this is here, it's a lot of drama. So the the prophet Jeremiah went his way. And so he had temporarily lost now, Hananiah, you know who he reminds me of? This whole thing with Hananiah, what it reminds me of is QAnon. Do you guys know what QAnon is? Anyone know what this is? Right. I don't know you're supposed to talk about this in churches, and that's, that's why I want to talk about it. Um, but um, so QAnon was like leading up to Trump's uh, reelection, what everyone thought was going to happen, because how in the world could, you know, weekend at Bernie's beat Trump? But, uh, but anyway, Biden did beat him. And, and people were really depressed afterwards. I noticed a lot of them, and they started talking about this conspiracy that I had heard about, because when you're on Twitter, you hear all about stupid things. And, uh, but now I had friends that were very sober-minded people talking to me about how there was this, this was all part of Trump's plan, right? You know, 4D chess underwater stuff, I guess. And how Trump had made, wanted this to happen because he was going to, like lure the cannibalistic ball of pedophiles out and then have all these 
like tribunals or whatever. And, and I was like, well, you know, that sounds a little wild, man, you know, <laughs> sounds, uh, sounds a little crazy. Um, and they're going on about it. And then I was just seeing normal, like normal people start talking about aspects of this. I just never, you know, there's always someone that's like believing some conspiracy theory, like we didn't land on the moon or what I believe. Um, uh, that is, um, what's his name? The guy said, I just called. I just called to say. Stevie Wonder, not blind. Um, but <laughs> anyhow, um, I kept seeing people more and more buy into that stuff. And it was, uh, it was, it was pretty wild. And it, and it was crazy all the way up to the 6th of January. And it kind of culminated with, you know, some people walking into the Capitol, and now it's been like, all right, well, you need to be ready. I am ready. Well, you keep, keep a watch. All right. I'm not changing my life. I am ready. I want him to come back whenever he wants to come back. Well, that's good, because you should be ready. What's going on here? <laughs> like, what does this all mean? Well, it was very similar. Um, and so even though I doubt the validity of their claims, that's not what was behind the question. I think most true news is of little value. It's mostly just chatter, interesting facts, and useless information. We have to uh, create games to justify it, crossword puzzles, trivia games. Uh, I was just trying to figure out why I should care and what should I do based on this information, right? The answer was always some vague exhortation like, stand strong. Okay, all right, I'll keep doing that, which is really just a derivative of trust the plan. And I like plans. I have a five-year plan. I, I do my life in five-year plans uh, for uh, personal, vocational, ecclesiastical. Um, I've, uh, I build it around goals and actions. I ask, what's the goal? And then I reverse, uh, reverse engineer how to achieve it through action. That's a plan. That's what you call a plan. And trust the plan never struck me as much as a plan, right? Like, not a plan at all. Uh, it certainly wasn't one. I could actively participate in outside of telling other people to trust the plan. I want to move people to actual steps. That's my mindset. Are there crazy, wicked things happening behind the scenes at a national level? You look at something like Epstein or whatever, absolutely, absolutely. Can I directly do anything about it? No, probably not in most cases. So what can I do? What does standing strong look like in action? What is a plan which I can actually participate? These are the questions that I'm most interested in pursuing. Um, and that's why, that's where the whole idea of uh, county before country came from, is I, I want to, do, I do want to affect change as much as I can as a Christian citizen, as a member of the community. I think I should. Um, but trust the plan is like, look, you're really depressed about what's going on, it's going to be okay, man. Trust the plan. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a triumphant attitude, joyful swagger. I like that idea. Have a bit of swagger in life, like you're a winner, right? Because you are, if you've been washed in the blood. Jesus is king. Um, Christ leads us in triumph. And the gates of hell certainly will not prevail, amen? Yeah. We're in a denomination which is mostly post-millennial in this eschatology. And it gives us a certain swagger and optimism, which I think is good. But let me tell you how postmillennialism, wrongly understood, can be like cheesy contemporary Christian music. Now, I rarely listen to 
CCM as they call it. I prefer, you know, quality music, like synth wave and lo-fi beats, or as my friend George Grant calls it, 80s schlock. Um, I love 80s schlock. Uh, but every once in a while, my dial lands on some Christian radio station, and you can always tell that it's a Christian station even before you hear any words because the music always sounds exactly the same. Overproduced and generally upbeat or overly sentimental, one of the two, right, on the second. And the lyrics are almost always positive. Everything's great. God is great. I'm great. Hey, you're great. Uh, Life is great. We're just happy, clappy, victorious people floating down God's lazy river of grace, right? That's what we are. It's maddening. It's maddening because life is full of crosses and losses. We don't camp out on mountain peaks. There are peaks, but in between, there are many painful and dark valleys in individual lives and in history. Where is the CCM equivalent of lamentations? Where are songs of grief and sadness? The faithful life is peppered with pain. There's no way around it. But our radio stations have no place for those sort of songs. It's probably bad for ad revenue. You're driving your kids to soccer camp. You don't want to be listening to lament. Now, what does that have to do with postmodernism? Well, there are some who act as if postmodernism is all mountain peaks, as if it's a straight line up. That goes higher and higher. They seem to think that postmodernism means the individual Christian or all segments of the church will always experience visible victory at all times. Right? Hey, on a side note, that postmill is not a personality. Right? That little hashtag, that postmill, that's not a personality. That's not a theology. That's a hashtag. Uh, you have to have more to your thinking than that. Uh, and, it's, and every little good thing that seems good is not part of what the doctrine of postmodernism. That's not what it's about. Obviously, the church will win. We will triumph. But our march to the end of the age will include dark valleys and songs of lament. Right? We should be lamenting what's happened to our country. It is a wicked nation, and it deserves to be destroyed. We deserve a Nebuchadnezzar, hands down. Pornography, unjust wars. I could go on blue laws, but I'm not going to. All sorts of things, okay? Like, we are a wicked nation. We have turned from a wonderful heritage that we had. Obviously not perfect, but good. So things like triumphalism, everything's okay, everything's great, everything's going to get better, uh, are always tempting because it kind of numbs the grief that we're dealing with. That's how, that's how normal people get suckered into something crazy like QAnon. Like I, I went deep into that conspiracy because I, I was this fascinated how crazy it was. Um, But that's not for the sermon. Um, We like it because it puts off a lament. It allows us to imagine that the hard work of repentance and reform and rebuilding will just happen. I mean, we've lost something. We've lost something. It's like a big deal, what we've lost. We haven't lost our God, but we've watched our society break down and uh, it's been breaking down for a long time, but it's been rapidly realized in the last couple of decades and last couple of years. You can tell us to trust the plan. 
And that's why we're tempted to trust in a lie and triumphant propaganda. That's why we're willing to listen to modern-day Hananias that make us feel good and don't show us the situation as it really is. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Trust in a lie. What a terrible thing. So he died. But the Hananiahs aren't the only problem. Um, there's another sort of prophet of propaganda. And by the way, propaganda, it's information, especially of a bias or misleading nature, used to promote or publicize a particular political cause or point of view. So it's just media that's lying, that's twisting, making you think things. So for example, uh, for some reason, I don't know why Facebook tells us these things, but Facebook was making uh, uh, like kind of hate, hate media, like white supremacy media, and they, they made it and they went out and tested it to see how people react to it, All right, just to help you understand how they do things. Or another interesting thing is um, TikTok here in America. You guys know what TikTok is? What TikTok is? No? All right. TikTok is a social media app um, where it's just uh, videos and you just, you're, you just keep swiping up because it's addictive. If you're on Facebook, they have those little reels that do the same thing. So the American TikTok rewards idiocy, right? Being stupid, doing that little shuffle dance that everyone's doing right now. Um, and uh, it rewards that sort of stuff. The Chinese government doesn't allow that in their country. They actually have a separate app that's very similar to TikTok and its algorithm rewards kids building and doing things that are productive, right? So their app comes over here and it rewards us like being decadent and kind of silly all the time and having no gravity, being all levity. And their app over there shapes people towards a more productive citizens, citizenship, something like that. And so these are all different forms of propaganda. Uh, CNN tries to build one, one type, Fox another, and so it is with all the, the new ones that pop up right now as well. Um, so this other type of propaganda, it actually crops up when you start to get to work and you do have an actual plan. You're not just trusting some mystical plan out there, but you're starting to do something. And we find a good example in Nehemiah 4, verses 1 through 7, and here's what it reads. Now, it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. So when they actually start getting something done, what's one of the first things that happen? They get mad and mock you. So just know that mocking is a, a byproduct of productivity. Your enemy will mock you when you start to get things done. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria. And he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah, the Ammonite, was near him and said, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Hear, O God, this is Nehemiah praying, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now when Sembalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and Ashdodites heard that the repairs of the walls of Jerusalem went on, 
and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. So what we have here in Nehemiah, it's one of my favorite books. Nehemiah is amazing. There's this high-level guy serving the emperor, and he said, he hears what's going on in his country. He says, let me go do this. Here's what I need. He's got a plan. He comes and he does it, and he takes care of everything, and then he just goes back. It's like amazing. It's just an incredible Seeing men like this, it's who I want to be. These guys that get things done, Nehemiah is not in it for him. He's in it for the Lord. Just like Jeremiah, it's something that heroic people have, is that you're, you're, uh, you're zealous for the glory of God, that his name would be honored above all. So Nehemiah comes and takes these uh, discouraged people and organizes them to rebuild the walls and the gates. And... He's very careful about how he goes about it. And these guys are these, they're always inviting him, like, hey, let's come talk. Come on, Nehemiah, let's come talk about things. And Nehemiah's like, uh, I'm busy doing stuff. I'm not going to do that. And that's how I feel sometimes when, like, the liberal pastors, hey, let's have a pastor's breakfast and get together. You know, like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm busy not preaching heresy. I can't do it. Um, <laughs> it's a busy schedule. I'm sorry, you know. Um, but uh, not every invitation is an opportunity. Some of them are traps. Nehemiah doesn't take it. These guys, though, what's interesting is before they ever attack them, what they rely on is propaganda. They try to break their will. Um, That's why I hear all these guys right now. There's a lot of stupid people right now that think they're going to create some sort of militia and overthrow our government. And if that's you, you're dumb. Um, Let me be honest with you. I don't know how you could get to that clueless when you look at what we can do with drones and how we can see through the ground and all this stuff now, you know, maybe you could hold off the first wave. But the real problem is you're disconnected from where God's put you in history. That's not even, how, how do we lose our freedoms? How do we lose these things? Was it taken from us by gun? Is that how that happened? We've lost the culture war, right? I'll get to the particulars tomorrow. Um, but we lost the war of propaganda. They, they told us lies, and we believed it. They told us lies on television. They told us lies in our schools. And they didn't have to conspire to come and fight against us to cause a disturbance because they demoralized us or demoralized people, right? I see that with a lot of young children walking away from the Lord these days, uh, don't believe the lies. Those people, they're lost. They are miserable. They're not miserable right away because sin is enjoyable. You know that. Sin is enjoyable for a time. It can be enjoyable, but it will get you. You will reap what you sow. And these people are trying to demoralize you and make you ashamed of being what God has made you. So they don't have to come and fight you. That's what they're doing. So that's this other type of propaganda. You hear it all the time. Church attendance is down more than ever. Well, maybe. I think we're watching a lot of people fall off from church um, because we don't have, uh, the church isn't seen as a positive anymore. And it's not even seen as a neutral. So it doesn't really matter if you go to church, you take it serious. So I think a lot of people are starting not to go to church because it doesn't matter. I see that as good. I see as some of those nominal Christians you know, hopefully they're being driven away by the preaching of the word, 
because uh, we either want to soften them by the preaching of the word unto salvation or harden them, whatever the Lord wants to do through his word preached. And, uh, but the truth is, I think churches are starting to grow and they're starting to get strong because this is starting to cost something. And the difference between light and dark is becoming clearer every day. And they're trying, trying to tell you that these things don't matter anymore, um, but they're just trying to demoralize you. Like, Scripture is true. It is irrevocable. It will never lose. It is something you can trust on. It is a firm foundation. And they're always trying to discourage you as you start to build. That's their goal. For they have demoralized the builders. Demoralized means to cause someone to lose confidence or hope, to break their spirits. So I have all sorts of confidence in my church plant right now. So much confidence, right? Because I don't even know what's going on. Um, it's like crazy. I, like, I, uh, someone's like, what's your secret? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I have played every hand that's been dealt to me well. But they have all been winning hands. So what I tell my church is that you all think I'm way smarter than I am. You think that because you see, up me, you see me up at the front, at the steering wheel. But guess what? There is no steering wheel. And this is not a car. It's a cart on the front of a roller coaster that I'm in front of and my hands are up too. That is exactly what's going on. Right? If the Lord builds the house, great confidence. If it's because of your technique or personality or whatever flavor of the month thing, well then there's good reason to be anxious. But if the Lord is working to do these things, through his church, we can have great confidence. The purpose of propaganda, when you think about the triumphalism, trust the plan, like, what do I do? Oh, just trust, stand strong, right? Don't take action. That's what it means. The demoralization, the propaganda that's kind of defeatism, is like, why build a wall? A fox is going to knock it over. They both are two sides of the same coin. The whole purpose is to get you to stop doing things, to stop working. Triumphal propaganda deludes you into thinking we can go back to the way things are, right? So when people, when people hear biblical sexuality, do you know what they think of? They think of Little House in the Prairie. I am almost positive they do. Because like, I want to get into biblical you know, sexuality and they start dressing like extras from the Little House on the Prairie, you know? And, but that's, that's because that symbolizes wholesomeness to them structured society, a mom, a dad, children, house, working with their hands. And so they're like trying to get traction and they're stuck back there and they're trying to relive that. I think that's, I think that's why uh, children get sucked into video games that are immersive. I think that's why grown adults like dress up like elves and get foam swords and go out and fight, you know, that LARPing. Or, hey, we're in the South, right? All these guys out here doing the reenactments. They're trying to connect to a time where society meant, made sense. They're trying to get back there. Even when you hear people talk about localism, what they seem to focus on more than anything is agrarianism, right? Like we're gonna get back to all of us, like everyone's got a cow and everyone's got chickens and, and you know, we're all like, we have our own little grid and we're totally, it's not gonna happen. It's, it's not happening. I'm so glad I would die, you know, like I... I'm weak. I'm a modern person. I think everyone thinks they could go live back. I, I should have been born in the 15th century or this century. You'd probably be dead, you know. <laughs> the fetus propaganda demoralizes you into thinking we can't build a new future together. 
So triumphant, we're going to get back there. Two years. Two years, not 70. Don't listen to Jeremiah. Two years. Look at this. I broke the yoke. We're going to be back there. It's going to be fine, guys. Trust the plan. Don't worry. Or you can't build a wall. The fox will knock it over. You're just trying to stop people from doing things. There are ultimately two sides of the same coin in their end result, in action. And where does most propaganda come from? Well, news and social media. We swim in media. Swim in it. One of the things that are most lacking in churches is meditation. Chew your food. Digest it. Have some time to be alone with your thoughts. If you want to do well in life, learn the art of being bored. Boredom is from the Lord. It's good for you. Right? When my sons say, I'm bored, Dad, I said, good. <laughs> good. I want you to be bored. Thank you, son. I love you, too. <laughs> news and social media, they are the enemy of local action. We justify our news consumption. I, I didn't know where, I didn't know there was going to be a war with uh, Ukraine when I wrote this. I had no clue. We justified our, our news consumption on the basis of praying for people elsewhere and staying in the know. Because I, I don't watch the news I find everything out from my friends and Twitter. I, I don't know how true it is. You know, the Babylon, if Babylon News says it today, I just take it as news two weeks from now. It'll come, it'll come true. Um, Babylon B, excuse me. Uh, but let's be honest. We, we spend hours and hours of news and social media for, for minutes, if not seconds of prayer. It's heaps and heaps of knowledge about other events happening and people living far away, uh, while we often know comparatively little about what's going on in our own community. I love, uh, I kind of like how Harrison Ford's a big grump. It makes me like him. He's a guy that played Han Solo, and he was on this episode of uh, Conan O'Brien back in the day. And some nerdy guy in the, the, they, they had a Q&A, and this guy asked him some really crazy technical question about the Millennium Falcon. And then he, he goes on and on and on, and they ask uh, Harrison Ford, and they zoom in, and he says, who cares? <laughs> that was his answer. Who cares? Like, we, we know so much about things that don't matter. Again, this isn't saying, I know, I know Tolkien and the power of stories and how it helps you realize real life and all that stuff. All right, if that's true. It should be true of your life. I hope so. Um, but we know all this knowledge about other places and fake worlds and all this information we have. Like, uh, people will ask me often what I think about this or that controversy, and I, I don't even know what's going on. I don't know who's the big pastors these days. I'm going to keep it that way. It's peaceful. I love it. Um, I used to know all the big pastors. I used to joke about how there was like a fantasy, you know how there's fantasy football? There was like a fantasy pastor league, and you could trade different pastors. I would joke about that. Um, but then I just got so sick of all the celebrity stuff, I just disconnected. And it's great, because... Um, they all come in cycles. There's like Brian McLaren, and then he disappears, and then there's Brian McLaren 3.0, or there's Bill Hybels, and then he merges into Mark Driscoll, and you, most of you guys, so you younger people don't even know who that is. Um, and there's going to be another one of him. They just, like, just keep happening. So you just detach. You don't know. It doesn't matter. Uh, 95% of news and stuff we watch online is just entertainment. It's just distraction. It's consumption. It's something to talk about. It's a way to feel involved without being involved, which is why you have to beware of action by proxy. Let me give you an example of this. 
Um, I'm from Cincinnati, and the Bengals is a football team, and we, uh, I even listen to me, I say we, like it's a covenantal reality I share it. Hang on here, all right. There's actually a, there's some deep spiritual things going on there, but another conference. Um, but so they got to the Super Bowl after being losers for a really, really long time. Um, and when they got to the Super Bowl, everyone in Cincinnati was walking around like they were a big deal, right? My dad and brother, who are both from, were born in Kansas City, but they're big Chiefs fans, they, uh, they had the Bengals had to play the Chiefs. I guess it's in the playoff, the game, the championship game right before the Super Bowl. Um, and when uh, they they text me like, "Sorry, son, we have to win this one." We, sorry, I don't care. Like, what do you mean we? Like, what's your forty? Ten minutes? Like, like what are we talking about? Like, what, like uh, the Bengals win and I'm a winner now. My bills are the same. My responsibilities are the same. Literally, nothing has changed. Like, um, but I used to hate that in Cincinnati. That's what broke me down. I also realized that NFL people are the worst Sabbatarians of all time, right? They prepare all week for Sunday, night before. They buy all the food, and they invite people over, and they worship on Sunday. And if their team's a winner, they're happy through the rest of the week. Sabbatarians, Sabbatarians. Um, but anyway, in Cincinnati, it was like a really big deal. If the Bengals win, we win. No, no, not at all. They're not even people from your town. You can say, well, it's like the old Spartans. No, these are people that went to a bunch of colleges and we paid a bunch of money and we bring them here and they don't even have a house, maybe an apartment here. Like, what does it have to do with anything, right? Just like you in Moscow. What do you have to do with Moscow? Like, what? So they're doing all this stuff. And they're printing all these books making all this, these videos and stuff, does that make you a winner? <laughs> Are you a winner by proxy by their action? Like these Bengal losers in Cincinnati? <laughs> Praise God for what they're doing. Everyone's been built up and blessed by it. Bold men doing good things. I'm thankful for it. I've benefited from it in many ways but you're not partaking in their action. Not directly anyhow. The Bengals being winners don't make you a winner, and Moscow being doers doesn't make you a doer. I think most news exists to raise our spirits into non-action or to lower our spirits to non-action. We not only have allowed the news which is, again, largely propaganda to distract or demoralize us. We've allowed it to deplace and delocate us. We've allowed the space in which we dwell to become irrelevant. I was very affected by Neil Postman going into my freshman year. I was very lucky. I went to a Catholic church book sale, and I bought a bunch of church fathers, and then I picked up Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind, and Neil Postman's amusing herself to death when I was 19 on my way to Northern Kentucky University. They say it's the Harvard of Northern Kentucky. <laughs> we called it the No Knowledge College. Um, Postman traces all this stuff, this delocation, back to the telegraph. He writes, for telegraph, he did something that Morris, like Morse code, did not foresee when he prophesied that telegraph, he would make one neighborhood 
of the whole country. It destroyed the prevailing definition of information and doing so gave a new meaning to public discourse. Among the few who understood this consequence was Henry David Thoreau, who remarked in Walden that we are in a great haste to construct a magnetic telegraph from Maine to Texas. And but, but Maine and Texas, it may be, have nothing important to communicate. We are eager to tunnel under the Atlantic and bring the old world some weeks nearer to the new. But perchance the first news that will leak through into the broad, flapping American ear will be that Princess Adelaide has the whooping cough. Right? You ever go to like a news article and there's all the crazy articles on the side? You know, it's like really kind of salacious stuff. But, you know, people really care about, I forget, the, the prince that married the girl that runs his life. What's that guy's name? Harry? Yeah, who cares? Why? We're Americans. Didn't we like fight a war not to care? Uh, like, isn't the whole point? But what he's mocking here is really what passes as news. He continu- or, uh, Postman argues that the Telegraph redefined discourse in that it introduced large-scale irrelevance. What does it matter? Impotence, I can't act on it. And incoherence, it's detached from my contacts. He continues, these demons of discourse were aroused by the fact that the Telegraph, he gave a form of legitimacy to the idea of context-free information. That is, to the idea that the value of information need not be tied to any function it might serve in social and political decision-making and action, but may attach merely to its novelty, interest, and curiosity. And, he goes on, within months of Morris's first public demonstration, the local and the timeless had lost their central positions in newspapers, eclipsed by the dazzle of distance and speed. In fact, the first known use of the telegraph by a newspaper occurred one day after Morris gave his historic demonstration of the telegraphy's workability. Using the same Washington to Baltimore line Morris had constructed, the Baltimore Patriot gave its readers information about action taken by the House of Representatives on the Oregon issue. The paper concluded its report by noting, we are thus enabled to give our readers information from Washington up to two o'clock. This indeed is an annihilation of space. Our thoughts are everywhere, but nowhere in particular. And our knowledge is abundant, but irrelevant to our day-to-day existence. In place of action, there is instead an unending awareness campaign where whether in person or online, we share news or information that is practically pointless. It crowds our whole life. Do you see the relevance to localism? The things that we are hearing all week long and listening to and subjecting ourselves to, whether it's good stuff, and especially if it's bad stuff, is disconnecting us from where we're at, and it's either giving us a sense of accomplishment or the sense that you couldn't accomplish anything. It's breaking you away from your place. We have to recapture the importance of place, of land, of matter, of stuff. I was at a, um, was at a bar in Batavia, and they had uh, country music. Not my favorite type of music. 
I grew up listening to rap and techno. Um, so I don't usually listen to, to country music. But as I listened to it, it was fascinating. The guy was from the county over Brown County. We're in Claremont, so right next to us. And as he sang, all his lyrics were full of smells and touches. Like I, could, I knew the trees he was talking about. And I knew the smell he was talking about in the fall. I knew what he was talking about. It was very it was earthy. It was connected to, to something. And we're living in this digital space now, this nowhere place. I saw this picture of the metaverse. Uh, you know, uh, Zuckerberg, his girlfriend broke up with them, and now he's going to try to turn us all into robots, right? <laughs> powerful. You women are very powerful. See what you do. Um, but uh, <laughs> nonetheless, um, I saw this picture of him walking down into a huge audience, and they all had that helmet thing on. And I asked my son, who's the master, who's the slaves, right? So they're literally trying to create their own little domain where you can get detached from your body detached from your neighbor, from the particular time and place that God's put you, right? They're trying to delocalize you. That's the whole, whole purpose right now. It's easier to manipulate and control people with propaganda. You can create a whole world. One that was killing me the other day is that Disney is making these, like, suburbs you can move in. It's like, I think it's called Storyland. And so you can go live like a, like a Disney character, so you can, your whole life can be you pretending to, to be like a Disney character. But then again, we, we, well, I mean, we have men that pretend to be girls. Um, so it's not surprising. But my point I want to make to you, if you want to get local, if you want to embrace localism, the first start is to detach yourself from things that are feeding propaganda into you and start to get to know your local, you know, your, the place where God's put you. You know, a lot of times when that guy asked me if I was doing Jeffersonian localism, I said, I don't know. What's the name of your neighbor? And he's like, what? And I said, what the name of your neighbor and the last time you had them over? Because if that's Jeffersonian localism, having your neighbor over, preaching the gospel to them, showing up to city council, all about it. But you can see throughout scripture, there is a move to get you to not take action. And to people that think that thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. You always hear that something bad happens. Thoughts and prayers. Now, most of you are orthodox enough that you would never do that. But if you're not taking action where God's puts you, in faith, you are a thoughts and prayer Christian. It is the same thing. If you think postmillennialism just means that you're just positive and everything's great and you can just sit back, you've misunderstood the doctrine. God has put you right here in carry and is clearly doing exciting things. This is a great opportunity. And I, can, we, can we save our nation? I have no clue. I don't even think about it. But we're doing good things in Batavia. God's, we're seeing all sorts of fruit. We're seeing the word of God go forth and people get saved. Uh, people be built up. People marry, start businesses. Well, what if they all just swipe in and stop it with their guns, you know? It's like FEMA camps or something. I don't know. I guess we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But this is where God has you. So let's pray and let's ask that the Lord would help show us in our life the things that we need to detach from, whether it's social media or just overwhelmingly concerned with what's happening elsewhere, and then ask that he would show you what work he has given to you to do right here. So let's ask. Father, 
We thank you so much that you have uh, you saved us, Lord, and that though our final home is with you in heaven, you have work for us to do here right now, God. And even your gospel went out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, and this is our Jerusalem. This is where you put us, God. So show us, God, uh, the prophets of propaganda in our own life that distract us and draw us away from action. Um, so we can cut them off, Lord. God, help us uh, to be people that meditate and that live where you put us and show us the work that you have for us to do. Help us get to know our neighbors. Help us to preach the gospel to people here and not just think thoughts, but do things, God. Help, her to, help us to be people that hear the word and do it where you placed us. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.